All right, guys. Well, we're going to get into this today. As, as we introduced last week, our Christmas theme is the Manger Throne, this new song by Phil Wickham that we, we sang during service today. And we are looking at the humility of the king of the universe being willing to give up his throne to be born in a manger, to come in complete humility, and to make himself completely dependent upon mankind to be raised and to be nurtured and to live the life that, that God created him to live. And so that is what we're doing. Each week, I'm taking a line from the song and using that line as the inspiration for the sermon. And so this week, part two of this series is called Splendor We've Never Known. Splendor we've never known, right? We heard in the song that Jesus could have simply come and marched into Rome, right? The empire that ruled the entire known world at that time, he could have simply marched into Rome, overthrown the Roman government, established himself as the king over all the world, and shown everybody a splendor that they've never seen before. He could have done that, and we would have had our Messiah. We would have had our King. But you know what we wouldn't have had? We wouldn't have had our great high priest who shed his blood once and for all for all mankind. What we would not have had is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, who can relate to every difficulty, every pain, and every temptation that we go through. So Jesus wrote a better story. But I want to talk today about a splendor we've never known because Jesus is going to come in splendor. It just wasn't his first time. So if you've got your notes with you, you can find them in your bulletin or in our church app. They're attached to this video on our website or they're attached to this podcast if you're listening to the audio. Here is our big picture point today is if we believe that Jesus came for us once, then we have to believe that he's coming for us again. And how will looking for his second advent change the way we live? All right, that's, that's what we're going to go after today. Now, here's the thing. Jesus was a very real person who came into a very real world at a very specific time in a very real place. And so what I think it's important for us to do is to understand the time and the place and, and the environment that Jesus came into the first time so that it can inspire us to understand what's going to happen when Jesus comes the second time. So what that means is we're going to get a little bit teachy at first. We're going to nerd out a little bit. And then we're going to preach. And I want all of us to be inspired by the second coming of Jesus and what that means in our life today. Amen? All right, so let's talk about this. The Jewish people from the very beginning had a sense of the Messiah, right? The earliest messianic prophecy was actually spoken by God in Genesis chapter 3. When God was handing out the consequences of mankind's fall into sin, he spoke to the woman, he spoke to Satan, and he spoke to the man. Well, when he was speaking to Satan, this is what God said. And I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendants. 
You notice descendant is singular and with a capital D. Not all of her descendants, but one specific descendant. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. I like other translations better that say you shall crush his head. That sounds a little better than just you shall bruise him on the head. But the idea is is that there would be a descendant of humanity who would crush Satan, even though Satan would strike him first, this descendant of humanity would overcome Satan. That is our first messianic prophecy. Val read a messianic prophecy this morning from Numbers 24. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses prophesied. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. To him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them everything that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever does not listen to my words which he speaks in my name, I myself will require it of him. So God spoke of a descendant that would be victorious. Moses spoke of a prophet to come who would speak the words of God and have ultimate judgment over the people of God. What about King David when he wrote Psalms 2? He said that he, God, who sits in the heaven, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have fathered you. Ask it of me, and I will certainly give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Right? So you guys see that there have been messianic prophecies all throughout the Old Testament. The people of Israel, the Jewish people, were chosen by God, separated as a nation, specifically to bring forth a Messiah to the world, not just for the nation of Israel, but for all the world and all the nations. Amen? Now, While these prophecies appeared throughout the early portions of the Old Testament, they were really truly fleshed out in detail by the men that we know as the major prophets, right? We've got Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel who all prophesied in a similar time period leading up to the Babylonian captivity. And then we have Daniel who prophesied during the Babylonian captivity, during those 70 years. And these four men that we know as the major prophets in the Old Testament took the Messianic prophecies and inspired by the Holy Spirit, spoke the word of God, and fleshed out not only their understanding of the Messiah, but their understanding of the end times. And so this was pretty fascinating. I was reading this. This actually came from the the Jewish Encyclopedia. They listed bullet points at the time of Jesus which is known as the second temple period. You guys understand there was the first temple that Solomon built, and then Nebuchadnezzar completely destroyed it. After 70 years of captivity in the days of Ezra, they came back and they built a second temple. And so the second temple period in Jewish history goes from the days of Ezra up to 70 AD when that temple was destroyed. So the time of Jesus in Jewish history is known as the second temple period or the post-exile period. 
And what was the Jewish theology around the end times at this time? Again, this is bullet points from the Jewish encyclopedia. They believed in an apocalypse, that there would be an end of the known world. They believed that after that apocalypse, Messiah would redeem the Jewish people, restore them to Israel, rebuild the temple, and reestablish the throne of David. Then all nations would recognize that the God of Israel is the one true God. And Messiah would rule from the throne of David, not only over Israel, but over all the nations of the world in an age that would be known for justice and peace. And then God would resurrect the dead, and then God would create a new heaven and a new earth. Right? Those are the bullet points. So if we put them all on the screen at the same time, I know it's kind of small, but... When you look at this, what I'm hoping is going through your brain right now is that sounds an awful lot like the book of Revelation. And it should. For Jewish people, when John shared the revelation, other than the fact that he unequivocally stated that Jesus was the Messiah, the rest of it should not have been shocking to the Jewish people. Because the book of Revelation was not just a new revelation, a shocking new thing that God was declaring. The book of Revelation was a confirmation of the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and everything that they had spoken. Are you guys with me? So God didn't change his plans about the end times. God just reaffirmed them through John for the church of Jesus Christ. Because the church of Jesus Christ wasn't just Jewish anymore. And God reaffirmed his plans for the end times. So the Jewish people from the days of Ezra up until the coming of Jesus, were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for the end times. I love this. There was a Jewish rabbi named Maimonides. That's a fun name. Maimonides. He lived in the 12th century A.D., and I want you to listen here to what he said about the Jewish perspective of the Messiah. He said, anyone who does not believe in him or who does not wait for his arrival has not merely denied the other prophets, but has also denied the Torah and Moses, our rabbi. Right? So this is strictly Jewish. This is not Christian. Strictly Jewish. They believe with all their heart that they're waiting for a Messiah who's going to come in glory, and any Jew who is not eagerly waiting for a Messiah has denied the prophets, the Torah, and Moses. So, in these prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, as they began to go into detail about the Messiah, two pictures began to emerge. One is of a suffering Messiah, and the other is of a glorious Messiah. A suffering Messiah and a glorious Messiah. Let's talk about the picture of the suffering Messiah. Listen to what King David wrote prophetically in Psalms 22. 
He wrote, they open their mouths wide at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melted within me. My strength is dried up like a piece of pottery and my tongue clings to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. It is amazing that, that nearly uh, a thousand years before Jesus was born, King David prophesied the picture of the Messiah's crucifixion almost perfectly. Isaiah 53, a suffering Messiah, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we would look at him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. He was despised and abandoned by man, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we had no regard for him. However, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God and humiliated. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoing. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. There is a suffering Messiah. But then there is also a glorious Messiah. We have been reading many of the prophecies of a glorious Messiah throughout our Advent readings. Another one would be Isaiah 49, starting in verse 5. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. That's where we get this theology that the Jews believed that the Messiah was going to regather Israel. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is what the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and its Holy One says to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise, princes will also bow down down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you, right? So there is also this picture of Messiah that will be known across the entire world and that kings and princes would bow down before him. So we have two very different pictures. And in the Jewish rabbinical culture, what they did is they took those two pictures and turned them into two different messiahs. They called the suffering Messiah, Messiah ben Joseph. They proclaimed that he would be of the lineage of Joseph. The glorious Messiah, they called Messiah ben David, that he would be of the lineage of David. Or Messiah ben Judah, if he would be of the lineage of the tribe of Judah. So they took the two and they separated them. And then what happened is, as we get closer and closer to the coming of Jesus the persecution of the Jewish people just continued and continued 
In approximately 1 to 200 B.C., they were under the Seleucid Empire, uh, who were brutal against the Jewish people. And then the Maccabees led a result that set them free for a while until the Romans showed up, and then the Romans oppressed them with their own brutality. You guys get the picture. So what we have here is a Jewish people who have been taught from the Scriptures about a Messiah. But the more desperate their situation became, the more they forgot about the suffering Messiah and only focused on the glorious Messiah. And some had a temporal interpretation, right, which means an interpretation in their time, in their day. A temporal interpretation of the glorious Messiah was that Messiah would come as a political world leader, that all other world leaders would bow down to, that Messiah would come and overthrow the Roman Empire and would sit upon the throne of David and liberate the Jewish people, right? So they had this picture of the glorious Messiah, but they had it in very worldly interpretations. Others had eternal interpretations of the glorious Messiah, that he would be the one that ushers in the apocalypse, that the Messiah would come and bring about the end of the world so that he could reestablish the new heaven and the new earth in which he could sit upon the throne of David. So what we have is a desperate people who have suffered from generations of persecution and abuse and oppression, but they have the promise of God that a Messiah is coming, and they are looking for a glorious Messiah, some looking for a physical king, some looking for one that would bring about the apocalypse, but they were desperately looking for a Messiah. And isn't it interesting that God says at his appointed time, he brought forth Jesus. That God brought forth Jesus in a time of Jewish history when they were desperately looking for a Messiah. They had simply forgotten about the suffering Messiah. You guys with me? So that's the understanding of what Jesus stepped into. And so when you read through the Gospels about those who expected him to overthrow Rome, those who tried to grab hold of him and declare him as a king, it's because they were looking for the temporal Messiah who would come in glory. And for those that rejected Jesus and said he was a heretic for claiming that he was God and ultimately demanded that he be crucified, it's because he wasn't glorious enough because they had forgotten about the suffering Messiah. Are you guys with me? So now I want to take that and I want us to look at Jesus was both. There was never two Messiahs. There was always just one, and Jesus was both. He was both the suffering Messiah and the glorious Messiah. He would come in his first advent and he would suffer for all mankind. But then in his second advent, he would return in glory in a splendor we've never known to establish the kingdom of God forever. So let's take this to the New Testament. Acts chapter 1. Jesus in his resurrection after instructing his disciples, gravity loses hold of him and he begins to float up into the sky. And the disciples are watching him float away like a child who accidentally let go of their helium balloon. And they're watching and watching until either he disappeared behind the clouds or he got so far away that they couldn't see him anymore. 
And that's where we pick this up in Acts chapter 1. It says, and after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were watching, and a cloud took him up and out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, then behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you have watched him go. So the moment Jesus left this physical world, the angels prophesied he's going to come back the same way you're watching him go. Well, the way they were watching him go was floating in the sky. So what's the way he's going to come back? Floating in the sky. Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Jesus came the first time in anonymity. Nobody knew he had come. Angels had to tell some shepherds about it. Some wise men from the east had to understand the prophecy of the star to know about it. Other than that, nobody knew about it. He came in anonymity. But the Bible says when he comes a second time, everyone's going to know. He's going to be floating in the sky in such a way, and this is God's beautiful creativity, that the whole earth can see him at the same time. Right? Which defies the logic of our round earth. Hallelujah to you flat earthers out there. All right, so everyone can see him at the same time. There is going to be no doubt when he comes back. This is what Jesus said about his second coming. You guys will remember this from March when we taught on, on the end times and what Jesus taught about the end times. Jesus said, so if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet blast, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Come on, when Jesus comes back, there's going to be trumpets blasting. The sun's going to go dark. There's going to be great shouts, and Jesus is going to appear in the sky like a flash of lightning from the east to the west, and everyone's going to know. Come on, can we get a hallelujah? Skipping down to verse 42, Jesus said, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must be ready as well, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. 
All right, so we've got the picture. Jesus came as our suffering Savior, but we know he's coming again as our glorious Savior. And when he comes a second time, nobody's going to wonder. Nobody's going to question. Nobody's going to miss it. And Jesus said, be ready for it. So how does this apply to us today? How does the second advent shape our lives? You guys can see in your notes, I got five words I want to give you that speak to how this is going to affect us. You guys ready? Word number one is anticipation. Anticipation. Titus chapter 2, Paul wrote this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner in this present age, listen to this, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. There should be an anticipation Part of our life today as followers of Jesus is looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Other translations say to wait eagerly or to eagerly anticipate, right? There needs to be a sense of anticipation. How often do we think about Jesus coming again? We've gotten such great encouragement and great truth spoken today about getting caught up in busyness and, 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 and getting lost in the moment and how that can affect our attitude. Do we think about every day that Jesus is coming back? And so since it's Christmas time, I want to show you a clip from a Christmas movie that I think perfectly illustrates what anticipation is supposed to look like. You guys ready? Check this out. This is the North Pole. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Where's the snow? Why are you smiling like that? I just like to smile. Smiling's my favorite. Make work your favorite. That's your favorite, okay? Okay. Work is your new favorite. Fine. It's time for the announcement. Okay. Okay, people, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa's coming to town. Santa! Oh, my God! Santa here? I know him. I know him. He'll be here to take pictures with all the children. Yeah. Just keep your receipts. 10 a.m. tomorrow. 10 a.m. tomorrow. Santa's coming to town. Yes. Can you sign this for me? Oh, hi. Santa's coming. <laughs> That's what anticipation looks like. Come on. Are we like that? Are we like, oh my goodness, Jesus! I know him. I know him. <gasps> Jesus is coming. Come on, that's anticipation. He's coming. We should be excited about it. The great theologian A.W. Tozer said it like this. He said, when Christ returns to earth again, it will not be to redeem sin but to reward the saints. He is coming for a people who are looking for him. Come on. The work of redemption has already been done. Jesus is not coming back to give people one more chance at redemption. He's coming back for those who are looking for him. What does anticipation look like in your life today? The second word is consolation. 
consolation, which can mean comfort and hope, right? That when we think of the second coming of Jesus, it should give us comfort and hope. Jesus said this in John 14. He said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again, and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you will also be. Right? So Jesus told him, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back to get you. And because of that, don't let your hearts be troubled. The knowledge of the second coming of Jesus should be all the comfort and hope that we need. When we think about the messianic promises to the Jewish people and we think about a broken and hurting and oppressed people who had no hope and no comforts, yet they found comfort and hope because of the promise of the Messiah. Today, no matter what we're going through, we can find comfort and hope because we know Jesus is coming back. We know the end of the story. We know we're going to be victorious. We know we're going to reign with him for all eternity. Come on. Put that into perspective. Think about this. You guys know I'm a football guy, so let's use a football analogy. In 1999, the St. Louis Rams had a loaded team. They had Marshall Falk at running back. They had Isaac Bruce at receiver. Those were both future Hall of Famers. They had Oz Akeem at receiver. They had just drafted this young man named Torrey Holtz. Their team was loaded, but they needed a quarterback. So in the offseason, they went out and they signed Trent Green to, at that time, what was one of the largest contracts in NFL history. Now they were set. They had the quarterback. They were loaded. Everything was great. Until the last preseason game when Trent Green blew his knee out and he wouldn't play a single play that season. And can you imagine the Rams fans who had been so excited who are now devastated. They don't know what to do with themselves. Their season is over now they have to turn the quarterback job over to this 28-year-old backup who had only thrown 11 passes in his NFL career, a young man named Kurt Warner. Now, if they had known the end of the story, if they had known that Kurt Warner would lead the greatest show on turf and take them to the Super Bowl and win MVP and go to the Hall of Fame himself, if they had known the end of the story, they would have had great comforts. That Sunday, they were mourning the loss of Trent Green. But they didn't. They had no hope. What about two years later... In week two of the 2001 season, when Drew Bledsoe, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, got hit so hard that it literally severed a blood vessel and almost killed him, he was bleeding internally when they got him to the hospital, and it was obvious that he was not going to play anymore that season. And those poor, devastated New England Patriots fans who had to cope with the fact that they were turning over the team to a sixth-round draft pick. You guys following me? If we know the end of the story, it should change how we deal with the pain of the moments. And so when we know that Jesus is coming again, then we should have all comfort and hope today. Hallelujah. 
The Patriots dynasty has nothing on the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. Woo! Number three. How should it affect our life today? Celebration. Do we celebrate like we know our king is coming back? I read to you Isaiah 49 that spoke of the glorious Messiah. And at the end of that passage, verse 13 says this. Shout for joy, you heavens, and rejoice, you earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Come on, how are we supposed to respond to the promise of a glorious Messiah? We're supposed to shout for joy. The heavens should shout. The mountains should shout. Why? Because God has comforted his afflicted people because his Messiah is coming. Who? Where has the shout been in your life? This Christmas season, when we celebrate the Advents, and the first advent and the second advent. Can we just say today that the second advent will bring your shout back? That the celebration will return. The shouts of joy will be coming from your mouth. They'll be coming from your house. They'll be heard in your neighborhood. They'll be felt at your workplace. That the celebration has returned. Whoo, come on. Told you we were going to preach today. Number four is preparation. Fran lit the preparation candle today in the Advent story. Jesus said this in Luke 21, but be on your guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. That's what we've been talking about today, right? The worries of life. And that this day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who live on the face of all the earth. But stay alert at all times, praying that you will have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Preparation. Jesus said, listen, I'm coming. You don't know when, but when I come, everybody's going to know but I need you to still be standing strong when I come. Listen, you guys, this is so important. This is why I personally do not believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, and this is why we do not teach it from the pulpit. If you want to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, I'm not going to argue with you, but I don't think it's scriptural, but it's also not, you know, it's not a salvation issue. But here's why I think it's so important that we do not teach it from the pulpits. Because the end times are going to be hard. They're going to be difficult. The birth pangs are going to get more and more intense as this world gets worse and worse. And Jesus prayed for us that we would have the strength to still be standing when he comes. Listen, if we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, then we're just sitting around waiting for the first boat out of here before things get bad. And if that turns out to not be the case, then we're going to be completely unprepared for how bad it's going to get. We need to be prepared. The end times are going to be difficult. And there's going to be worries of this life. There's going to be dissipation. There's going to be drunkenness. There's going to be persecution. And Jesus wants us to be prepared. So we're not standing around looking for that quick trip out of here. No. Like warriors, we are preparing ourselves for the worst of times, knowing that Jesus is coming back. And my only goal is to still be standing strong when he gets here. Come on. Preparation. 
And finally, number five, invitation. If Jesus is coming back, we should be inviting people to know him. Second Peter chapter 3, Peter writes this, the, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be discovered. Jesus is coming back. It might be in a day or it might be in a thousand years. We don't know. But in God's timing, that's not slow because God is not bound by the timeline of humanity. God is waiting. And what is he waiting for? For as many people as possible to be saved. That's what he's waiting for. So our goal for Jesus coming back should not be so that we can be raptured away in glory with him. No, our goal for Jesus coming back is that he comes back because we did our job. And what was our job? To tell every people group on the planet about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that means that every time we invite someone to know Jesus, every time we pray the sinner's prayer, every time we lead somebody to Christ and we rejoice in their salvation, we're a little bit closer to Jesus coming back because we're doing our parts. Knowing that Jesus is coming back should challenge us to be inviting. Let me have the worship team come back. The great Reformed preacher John Piper said it like this, The return of Christ is not an escape hatch for a church that has failed. Rather, it is the fulfillment of God's purposes for a church that has prevailed. All right, Jesus is not coming back to rescue a broken church that doesn't have the gumption to make it through the tribulation. No, Jesus is coming back to gather his church that has prevailed and done everything that God intended for his bride to do. When we have brought the gospel to every tribe and every people and every language, that is when Jesus will come back. So as we close today, let's ask ourselves the question, how is the Holy Spirit challenging you? How is the Holy Spirit challenging me to live differently starting from today as we consider the second advent of Christ. How is he challenging you? Does there need to be more anticipation in your life that we're going to answer the challenge to think about the second coming of Jesus every day? Does there need to be more consolation in your life that instead of living in despair and desperation and fear and depression, that we would instead live in the comforts and the hope of our coming Savior? Do you need more consolation? Do you need more celebration? Have you not been expressing the joy of your faith in a way that is infectious for your family and for your friends and for your neighbors? Do you need more preparation? Have you been building up your most holy faith so that it will stand the test of time? Do you need more invitation? Have you not been telling enough people that Jesus is coming again? How will the Holy Spirit challenge you to live differently? 
Let's stand together. Let's worship and let's open our hearts. Holy Spirit, we invite you right now to come have your way in this place. Would you take the words that have been preached today? They are the words of God. And we stand in faith to believe that they will not return void, but they will do what they were intended to do. So, Lord, we open up our hearts to say, do whatever was intended. Change us today with the knowledge that our King is coming again. Change us today so that we will live as your people in great anticipation. Lord, speak to our hearts. Where do we need to change? Where are you shaping us? And then, Holy Spirit, would you bring the grace of Jesus Christ into our lives to make those changes? Oh, that we would be a people victorious, that we would be a people attractive to a lost and dying world. Thank you, Lord, for anticipation, for consolation, for celebration, for preparation, and for invitation. Let it rise up in us today as we worship you, Lord. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's worship.